for so many years when anyone would razz me or say, hey, that's wrong, do it again, I would be so embarrassed that it would hinder my growth. And I really learned to not be embarrassed. I'm trying to give good food to people and I'm in the hospitality industry and I'm not always going to get it right. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. The Bear. We all love The Bear, the hit restaurant drama from FX that begins its second season run on June 22nd. And we love The Bear for good reason. The show was the talk of TV last summer and one of the most realistic portrayals of restaurant life on TV. Courtney Storr is a Los Angeles-based chef and the show's culinary producer. That means she's behind the show's hyper-realistic cooking scenes that are now legendary. On the show today, we talk about how Courtney gets the cast ready to cook. We also dive into the important and tricky topic of what makes a great chef. It was so nice seeing Coco again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Courtney Store. Hello. I'm going to call you Coco. That's me, Coco. Coco Store. Welcome to Taste. Great to see you. Great to see you, Matt. I'm so happy to be here. I love seeing your face. We've we've met before, and but we've did the podcast remotely, and now we're you're real in, people. We're real people in there. Yes. Okay. So from the jump, this is spoiler free. We're gonna go spoiler free here. Don't get me in trouble, Matt. Yeah. It's just it's too much on the line. Too much on the line. We're recording this uh, on June first. We will be running it very close to the premiere of The Bear the show that you are a culinary producer on, you're a creator, your brother is a creator, you work with all the cast, we've had AO on, we're going to have Lionel on soon. Oh my God, what kind of year have you had? Wow, it's been intense, that's for sure, but in such like a a great way, like creative intensity is sometimes like you're like, ah, it, it was like a whirlwind, but it was amazing and also challenging and fun. And I think season two, similar to season one, um, everyone brought their A-game and came very prepared and want to make the show as good as possible. And so this year has just been very dedicated to doing that. I think it started months before we even, you know, began filming with just preparing the actors in a different way. Um, really having some of an idea, you know, in the writer's room where they were going to take season two and just making sure that we were setting everyone up for success. Yeah. I mean, let's just start. It debuts last summer right away. There's a response from both the industry and from critics. But this is funny. I was at the James Beard Awards last year. It was before the first episode aired. Uh, Jeremy, uh, the lead actor, plays Carmi, was standing in the green room. Literally zero people talked to him. Zero people who knew who the fuck he was. The I know. Sh- it's crazy. I know. And I remember him doing it and being like, I felt it was just it was just like I was there. And then like here I was at the James Beard Awards. <laughs> and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, because nobody f- really knew, you know, about the bear at that time. No one knew. We just knew it was a name of a show that was based in Chicago. And like, listen, fast forward a few weeks and it's like everyone's catching season episode one, episode two. The response from all communities, from TV critics especially, uh, loving the show. Now, what's that like for you working on the show with your brother? So such a tight knit cast when it just blows up, becomes the biggest show in television. Well, I'm super proud of Chris. Um, and I think that that's been really cool for me. You know, a lot of people, you know, don't know his story really and how long he's been trying so hard and, and came from nothing to do that. Um, 
And, you know, we grew up uh, in a very dysfunctional uh, family and um, Chris has really climbed up, you know, slowly and surely, like believing in himself. And, and I'm sure it wasn't easy. I know that it wasn't. And so it's incredible to see him get uh, recognition this way. Because he des- deserves it. He definitely has earned it. And I think, like, um, for him and I, it's been really amazing to work together. It's been cathartic in a lot of ways to just, you know, work on a project together as siblings and adults after, you know, we went through a lot as kids and, like, kind of grew up a little bit apart from each other and then reconnected back in Los Angeles. He was continuing his career in not only television, but movie making and writing and producing. And then I was this young chef living with him. By the way, young, (laughs) I just added that in, but that's not true. I was not young. And, you know, but, but he, you know, there was this moment where our lives kind of crossed paths again and he helped me out. And, you know, I lived with him as I came up in, in the chef world. As you worked at John and Vinny's and rose the ranks yourself. And I met you and know of you as a chef, not as a television producer. Now you're both. Um, You're living with your brother in Los Angeles, working at John and Vinny's. Mm -hmm. He's working on the scripts for the bear. He's, He's outlining it. What's, what are those conversations like those early when he's like, we should write a show about our lives because clearly this is autobiographical in some ways. Well, yeah. I mean, actually, so The Bear happened after I lived with Chris. You know, he had written this as more of a movie many years ago. And my input came in, you know, years after I had lived with him. I had moved out on my own and, you know, um, had continued, like you said, working my way up in the restaurant world. And, he kind of said, hey, look, there's some interest. This was during the pandemic. You know, there's some interest in, you know, I think the the show was called Something Else. Mm-hmm. And um, he's like, they're they're interested in making this happening, happen and, and we're turning it into a pilot. And would you talk to the writer's room and can you give them some examples and let them get to know you a little bit? And so that's how it began was, you know, me meeting with the writers and Joanna Callow, who run who ran the writer's yeah. room and is also a showrunner and executive producer on the show. And it was just incredible to just sit there and be candid and tell stories and also give insight into all of the logistics behind restaurants and the operating guides I've created over the years yeah. and how I structured teams. Like the stuff you see Carmi sitting in the office with papers around him. And this is like your life. And so there's a real sense of reality there. And I have to ask you, um, a lot of food fiction on television was pretty bad going into the Bears' legacy or the run. And I have to ask you, when you're in the writer's room, are you thinking about some of the potential mistakes that you could be making? I mean, a million percent. And I found if I got those voices too much in my head, then I wasn't speaking from a really honest place. And I think that that happens often with anyone um, in a creative space is sometimes you think of your critic before your fan or someone who might engage in the story or or relate Mm -hmm. to it and be inspired by it. So I started to just really try and think of myself as a young cook and like all the lessons that I had learned, the vulnerabilities that I felt when I was coming up and cooking, you know, how um, how tangible all of it is. You you have these highs and lows, but you can't fake it. You know, you, you really have to be putting in work to get something out of cooking. So I was hoping that in the writer's room that they were feeling that, that like on my worst day, what did that feel like? Well, they were listening to you. It's obvious. Like I'm sure like chef consultants have been on shows, uh, many shows, but clearly your brother and Joanna and the writers are listening to you. Yeah. Clearly a special sauce is that. 
And I mean, the penultimate episode with the, which is the single shot, quote unquote, um, that has the the ticket machine going crazy. Did that ever happen to you? I mean, it feels like every that's- day for many, many years. And, um, you know, when you work in restaurants um, that have not only dine-in guests but to-go food, it's a different animal, literally. It's quite um, overwhelming if you let it. You're producing a lot of volume. And, you know, when I was at John and Vinny's, it was like hundreds of covers and then to-go food on top of it that was the same amount of covers, if not more. So if you could imagine at any given day having a ticket rail full, we had three ticket rails full. I had to organize not only the in-house tickets and paste those for the guests that are eating. So what that means is like when you're at a restaurant and you get your salad before your pasta or your, you know, pizza, you have a pace to it. And then you also have to meet deadlines with your to-go food of timing that's set up by like DoorDash or Caviar or whatever it was. And so my brain was just a machine. I would go home and I would not be able to wind down for hours and then I would sleep and I'd wake up thinking of the ticket machine or I'd hear it over and over and over, you know. Did you eat? Did you have, did you have like a Cokes and, and well, donuts that's, late at night? That's what you see with Carmi in season one is the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. I would be around such amazing food all day and all night, um, you know. I'd have one bite of pasta. I was tasting every single pasta that would go off the line at John and Vinny's and, you know, teaching cooks how to do this, how to season, like around so much savory flavor. And then I was right in front of the pastry case grabbing a donut and like shooting back some espresso and then going and just, you know, by the end of the day, I didn't want anything rich. Like flavor wise, I was just like, I want simplicity. And like, that was always something like simplicity and something fast and something that's not going to spoil in my refrigerator. And so, so you land on peanut butter and jelly. Often, yeah. Peanut butter and jelly. Maybe I'd make like a toast with like butter and jam yeah. and then like coffee. And I just kept it really simple. And my main meals were at the restaurant, which is something a lot of cooks go through. Like not everyone can even afford to be um, working in a restaurant, then buying groceries, paying their bills, paying their rent, you know, their car payments, whatever it is. It's like you go home and sometimes you are struggling financially. And so it's a real treat when you go to a restaurant and have family meal or staff meal and it's like delicious. It's actually good. Yeah. I have to ask you, we've talked about your show a lot on on our show and we had Stefano Secchi from Risadoro. We had Dil Talde in and both those individuals on the record said, I cannot watch this show. It is too triggering. And like these aren't really um, responses with a smile. This is actually responses that they were like dead serious. They could not watch the show. Do you hear this from chefs? All the time. And I get it. (laughs) (laughs) And I encourage chefs to follow whatever they're feeling um, because I, I totally understand it. I think if you give the bear more time and you stick with it, you see that it's a lot about chefs, but it's more about connection between people, forgiveness, um, you know, the challenges that you face and and mental health awareness and taking on a lot of responsibility or putting pressure on yourself and just kind of the levy breaking. And sometimes people find that to be uh, something they can relate to and it feels good. And then some people are like, that's too much. That's too vulnerable. And I can't go there. I and I get it. it. I mean, it's a real credit to you and the producers and the, and the actors for, for actually capturing that sentiment that is that triggering. That's like really the Art art can do a lot of things, and, and when art creates a visceral emotion that I cannot watch that show, it's, like, pretty powerful. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially with Carmi and, and a lot of the characters, 
One thing that I think I didn't express as a chef was that it was hard in a mental way a lot of times that I could do the physical work. I could run the expo and keep that restaurant moving. But the toll it was taking on my mental state in conjunction with stuff I hadn't really addressed in my personal life or my upbringing, it all became too much. And when you fill a space and and do a job really well and it moves and, and it kind of feels like it's feeding your adrenaline and your adrenals and everything's going yeah. and you're just moving, you kind of stop and and it hits you in different ways when you're not working because your body's kind of like, yo, wake up. You We talked about how you got your cast ready for season one and there was a bit of boot camp for some of the actors who hadn't really worked in, in kitchens in the back of the house. How did you prep your staff, your, yeah, I call them staff, your, your cast? <laughs> I know, I've been doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> how do you prep them for season two? And then I want to have some, I watched the trailer, so I have a bunch of questions about that. Yes. Um, you know, I was really impressed with the cast this year, um, as well as last year because of the dedication and the interest in getting it right and learning enough about the season that they could prepare in their downtime because this isn't like a paid situation. It's like, it's there, it's in their free time that they, um, train with me or we set them up with somebody else. Uh, but I think everyone wants to do well. And I think they've all have expressed to me that they really feel the responsibility to the hospitality community community just to do it right and take it seriously. And it's it's something that they have to be acting. It's like it's you're saying the words, but so much more than that. And you can really see how they move and, and how they're acting that really like captures the intensity that like cooks yeah. show, you know, if you work with other cooks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it. the way they, they speak. Uh in there, like sometimes there's very few lines right. because it's very much like quick, quick, quick. And then it's like action. It's like movement. Right. Which I think seems like a kitchen reality mm-hmm. where words are some shunned in some kitchens. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And we worked with a lot of different um, people for season two uh, that we can't talk much about. But I will say that there was so much insight this season. You know, even for me to prepare uh, for season two, I spent a lot of time in different kitchens just to brought in my awareness and my experience because I've spent a very long time in restaurants, but there's so many different styles to what chefs like on the line versus what they don't. People like to be called chefs, so some people don't. You know, what is the hierarchy? Is there one? Is there not? Is there more of a community? Like, there's just so much to constantly be learning that I wanted to make sure I also was doing that work to, to like, yeah, like actually evolving. Yeah. yeah, and let me ask you about like fine dining because there's a, a real flashback thread, and I'm sure we'll come to that again in season two. It seems like your you as the the writers and, and the cast are making comment about fine dining, and a lot of chefs I've spoken to about your show, they've said that that was the most triggering part mm-hmm. was that uh, you know those flashback scenes on the line being yelled at, having like things whispered in ears. Like I had someone say that that's actually happened mm-hmm. to them. How did you research? Yeah, Yeah, talk about that. Yeah. Um, Well, I think what happens oftentimes is like kitchen cultures, uh, there's a wide spectrum and it changes based on what, of course, like what style of food, but it really depends on the leadership a lot of times. Like it's not as much about Michelin versus not Michelin. It's just the delivery might look different. You know, if you're in a kitchen where it's really rigid and quiet, 
and no one's talking during the line, it's the reason why a chef is going to go into your ear and whisper. But sometimes chefs just scream that out and embarrass you in front of other people. Or maybe they're not calling you a name, but they're doing, you know, kind of like a passive aggressive comment about how bad you are as a cook to another cook. Or there's just like little mind games that are played. And... You know, it it's like it's not unique to kitchens. A lot of jobs, like I've heard a lot of people who aren't chefs be like, yeah, I experienced this in this field or this field that are totally relatable, but not, you know, specific to what goes on in restaurants. And not all restaurants are like that. I mean, it seems like this behavior is bad. But there's also a mentality that this behavior creates great chefs. And I think you're wrestling with this tension in the show. Wow. Well, that's big because a lot of things create great chefs. Like in my opinion, what got me to be great wasn't always the negative experiences that made me afraid, that made me tense, but I don't know if it made me great. I would say a lot of times greatness comes from believing that you are, number one, very passionate about the industry and willing to put in the work that I believe is where greatness is coming from is like, look, if you show up and you continuously give your all and you're in kitchens where there's maybe a menu that's potentially changing or not, or different stations where you can move up little by little to learn the different techniques that you need to, to say work garmage versus a grill station versus a pasta station um, versus a prep station. You know, I, I don't know that for me, I would say Your only reason I'm going to get great is if I got yelled at, but I think some people get there that way. It's just each chef's story is very different. I'm so happy that's your response. I'm so happy that our listeners can hear you say that out loud because in the year 2023, I've had chefs say to me on the show, which we've cut and also offline, that pain is required. Mm -hmm. I've literally like that's a term that someone has said to me in this Mm -hmm. room that was cut. Because it's crazy. It's a crazy thing to say out loud that pain is required to do a good job. But still, to this day, it's part of the kitchen culture. Sure. And and pain is such a tricky thing because it's like it was painful when I made family meal that sucked. I was really hard on myself. And that kind of pain made me research and prepare the next meal better the next day. And sometimes... I would say making mistakes, being bad makes you good in kitchens if you're willing to accept that you're not going to be always perfect and always good from the beginning. And that, you know, a yes chef mentality doesn't mean it's just about hierarchy, but it's just about being able to persevere when you aren't very good and like persevere when you make something wrong and not let your ego get in the way to admit like, hey, I just like botched that bronzino. I just really effed it up and I'm embarrassed. And like, I just overcooked that steak for the 10th time ever. Like there was something that happened this season and I showed Maddie and I remember him being like, what the fuck did you do to that thing? And my pride, I was embarrassed. And then I was like, you know what? Yeah, I really messed it up, you know, or something like that. This is like, like a food styling piece that yeah, was Yeah, it was like something be, silly. It was yeah. like something so, totally silly. And I, it was actually something I was brainstorming in my uh, yeah. brain about a menu piece. And I was like, hey, I tried this thing last night. And he's like, well, I like the idea of it. But like, what'd you do to the the meat? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, it's not the meat. It's the idea, you know. But for so many years when anyone would razz me or say, hey, that's wrong, do it again, I would be so embarrassed that it would hinder my growth. And I really learned to not be embarrassed. Even if I was, I would be like, look, it's not rocket science and I'm trying to give good food to people and 
I'm in the hospitality industry and I'm not always going to get it right. That's that's such an emotionally mature answer. And I just, it shows how some folks just don't have it. <laughs> that we yeah. talk to you and I appreciate you being candid. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think uh, that's just being adaptable too yeah. and being in kitchens where a lot of times I was underestimated and people would see me and see me cook a family meal and instinctually be like, she's not that good. I'm not worried about her. And I didn't let that bother me, even though it did and it hurt my feelings. Instead, I would just be like, I've got to do better. I've got to do better. I know I can do better. I can like figure this out. And I really tried to strengthen my inner intuition and listen to it because I think that's the difference like sometimes with women in the industry that it can be a little bit different because we don't want to show any vulnerability because any vulnerability seen is weakness or people mm-hmm. calling you emotional and like don't yeah. be emotional oh my gosh it's like a crazy Daggers. instant Ugh. yeah it's a crazy instant thing that can happen where any sort of disagreement or frustration can be like misconstrued very quickly yeah your stage that you, were, you film on famously has working gas. It's a real kitchen, which I think in a lot of television productions is not the case. Um, is there a version of family meal on set? Is there actually food being consumed that maybe you or, or other culinary producers are making? Oh, yeah. I can't say what it was, but we, we try. I mean, often, you know... Um I can't give things away, but I, I would say whenever I can, I try to make things for the crew okay. because I love them so much. And we have the most amazing crew and team and just like everyone, if they smell something good, they're like, Coco, what's up? What are you making? Like, what's going on today? Like, why does it smell like garlic? Why does it smell like this? Why? I'm like, geez. <laughs> That's amazing. So there's, I mean, I love the fact that the stage has smell of, has a smell of food. It's not CGI. <laughs> oh no. I mean, I think it adds so much. Yeah. Um, it adds so much for the actors too, the curiosity yeah. for the knowledge of like what's going into these things that we're doing. You know, they want to know, they want to be in the mix. They want to see and watch. So we're recording this before the first episode airs, so we have an embargoes on, on what's happening. Um, but I'm going to base some questions on the trailer, which is public. What is a chaos menu? <laughs> it's so interesting. I've never heard the term. Oh, I love it. Oh, my God. You're, this is so funny because me and Maddie always joked about this because we were like, what is a chaos menu? Because, listen, everything in in – the entire show sometimes, even for us, we're like, oh, we don't we don't know what that is. <laughs> like I like Googled it as a chaos menu. Um I did too, and I couldn't find it. But anything. I guess in the chef world, from what I've learned, is there are people who call a menu that's like um not specifically structured in a specific like, for example, it can mean that the tasting menu takes a route that feels different. Maybe the lettuce is at the end, or like yeah. you have a a bigger dish at the beginning of the menu, or maybe you switch it this way or switch it that way. I think it just means non-traditional, a little bit different, no no real formality, uh, but a tasting menu of sorts. I see, like Eshtabari famously does yes. the steak at the end. Correct. Like, just like wacky and and right. and free from any specific tor- sort of structure, I think. I was happy to see in the trailer that there was uh, the idea of culinary school is addressed. And uh, clearly it's being debated internally or externally. I'm not sure. I haven't seen the episodes, but did you go to culinary school? I did. So I did. let me tell me about that. And like, what is your take on the necessity of culinary school? Well, culinary school for me was because, you know, I obviously started in, in restaurants as a host and then worked in, worked my way as like a server, bartender, manager, whatever I could do in the front of house. But I was always 
more intrigued by back of house, but was um, discouraged from doing it for the financial reasons. Yeah. But also I was too nervous that I wouldn't know what anything was back there. And again, scared of not being taken too seriously. And I wanted to legitimize my knowledge some way. I wanted to have almost like a safety net of information before I committed myself to the restaurant world, which happened when I was 28. Mm -hmm. You know, I... You worked in HR. You were an executive. Mm -hmm. You worked I was at, an executive. I mean, I was like a sales manager at one point yeah. for UPS. I worked my way up from HR and then I went into Whole Foods as HR and then marketing. And, you know, yeah. I had these big corporate jobs and I knew I was going to flip uh, my world upside down because I knew I wasn't going to make a lot of money at first and I was going to take a big hit and I had to figure that out. So the savings that I did have didn't last very long. And I went to culinary school at night and moved to Paris and then came back big time in debt mm -hmm. um, to really use that information in culinary school and apply it. And like one of my instructors at school had said that Ironically, he had instructed Jeremiah and Fab from mm -hmm. Contra. Well, there. Yeah. Yeah, those boys. And uh, was like, hey, because he had trained them in New York and he had come to um, Campbell, California, which are the culinary school was. And was like, listen, these two, these two kids just went to Paris and learned a ton. Like, you need to do that. You got to go. And um, I didn't have anything to lose. I wanted to take the risk. And so I did, and it was a smart risk to take, yeah. even though it was really difficult. Yeah. I didn't speak French. I was a really bad cook. You know, there's just like so many days where I was like, you're an idiot. Man. <laughs> but it's a real rubber hits the road moment as for a professional, and you could see what, it, what you needed to do, what you need to get better at, I would imagine. Yeah, and I just watched people that were incredible at cooking, and I just kept watching them. And I observed and observed and observed. And when I didn't know how to cook the same way that they did, I kept trying. And, you know, I watched a lot of videos um, on YouTube and read all the cookbooks that I could all the time. Any that pop in your head? Any books? Um, yeah, well, at the time I read Blood, Bones, and Butter by yeah. Gabrielle Hamilton. Um I was always reading cookbooks. I am a huge cookbook collector. Um, some of the cookbooks I have were even in German mm -hmm. or <laughs> French. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would just be flipping through them for the images or the yeah. instruction on how to fillet fish. And, you know, even though I was learning how to do this in real time at the restaurant, I was still like, there's so much to learn. It doesn't hurt to just like see different variations. Yeah. Oh, I mean, still to this day, I'm learning something new every day in the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, that's truly any chef. I I mean, you see, uh, we talked to Wiley Dufresne recently. He goes and buys like 10 books a month. Um, it's part of the the gig. You have to learn. You, and if you're, if you're closed-minded, you're kind of losing the thread. It's changing. People are changing. Obviously, we have technology evolving so quick. It's so difficult to even keep up with. Um, but I'm really passionate about food in this way where, like, I'm also trying to take some of those old techniques with me into the current time. And it's like, that's why I always reference, like, older cookbooks. That's why I collect them right. because the information structure and how the recipes look are very different. Sometimes they drive me crazy because the measurements are totally terrible. And like <laughs> they're so off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're so off and wacky and they're not like grammed down to the, you know, each specific ingredient. But um, 
the gist and in, in the information at least feels different. Our mutual friend Erica Gable introduced us uh, or reintroduced us. And, and you guys are all part of a cookbook club yes. in, in L.A. with some of the, the coolest mm. folks in the food industry. And you're cooking out of books. Tell me about that because I thought that I, I just love this idea that all these professionals in various levels of food are, are cooking from a book every month. I mean, it's just a really special cookbook club is like a, a really amazing moment to not only focus on, you know, a certain type of food or a certain type of cookbook, but it really brings a community together. And there's so many moments of just talking about food in in this way that makes it fun. And that's why I enjoy it, because I think I would get into the specific food world in a really like rigid way, because it was my career and it is my career, that I just miss the joy of cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Julia Child. Um, <laughs> where I would just want to enjoy it with friends again in this way where it took the pressure off. And sometimes I go to cookbook club and I don't even cook anything. I just want to see everybody. Yeah. And see the crew together. What yeah. have you, what books have you been cooked from? Um, there's a lot. We've gone anywhere from like, uh, the river cafe cookbook. We've done, um, a lot of new cookbooks that have come out. It kind of is a range. We did Justin Muck's cookbook, Salad oh, yeah. Freak. That was really fun. So it's like simple to like fancy. To yeah. Like, it's cool that you're yeah. all over the place. Um, I love to hang out with your crew. Yeah, it's a good crew. I love it. You've mentioned that you have served as kind of a phone a friend for your brother, where he'll call you um, in a pinch when he's writing scripts and working with the showrunners and uh, and the, the the writing room. Tell me, is there a moment in this new season that you he called you when he was in a pinch? What did you say to him? Well, not. I mean, this this year my role was a lot more established, nice. and I was in the mix uh, from the get pretty really early on. So, um, so there was no phoning. You were just there. I was there, baby. That's I great. was there. You're in the ready room. It. I was ready to go. Um, but I think, you know, with Chris, it's it's always like, hey, look this over. Does this feel right? Does this look right? You know, part of my job is pointing out those things and just saying, hey, this feels wacky or like, what about this? And like, you know, we are making a TV show. So there are things that, you know, I can fixate on because I lived this world and and I want to be like, what about this and this and this? And he's really helped me understand the power of storytelling. And like, yes, we generally have to make this so realistic, but we also have story that we have to, you know, pull in. Yeah, Yeah, the story has to kind of make sense and the characters have to evolve. And so he's taught me a lot of film school along the way. And I have an interest in it now. But you got your cookbook stacks correct. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's Yeah. We'll see. Or dialed. I'm sure there's some really nice chestnuts in there that we'll see. Uh, Can you give us one like like reference, maybe sitting in the back, Um, that that we might that we should look for? That's a reference to food media, cookbooks. I mean, all all of them. Just wait. Like, there's cookbooks in Carmi's apartment. There's stuff in the restaurant. Um, You'll you'll see that it's grown from. You might we still see. never addressed denim in the freezer, but we'll hopefully get to that at some point, <laughs> not to lead the witness. But Yes, you maybe you will. Maybe, maybe you won't. Will. I don't know. That, that I don't was, know. That was a really memorable opening <laughs> spot. Like this guy, this guy's selling some denim. Um, okay, so I have to ask you about Chicago because you are from there. The show is based there and you have a real point of view. Uh, I have family from Chicago. My dad was born in Northside in Rogers Park. So I, I want to like riff a bit about what Chicago food means to you. So what was your diet like growing up? Um, so I grew up in the north side of Chicago, and 
grew up eating all of the classics, like anything from obviously hot dogs, obviously the Italian beef, but fast casual is something that Chicago does so well. And pizza, just obviously you're talking tavern style, you've got deep dish and like everything else in between. And I think, you know, something I learned at a very young age is like where to get the best meatball sub and like where's the best slice? Like where's my favorite piece of pizza that like I can find on on this area of Chicago or this area. And I used to go to this place called Gigio's, which was a family owned pizzeria that my younger brother and I used to go to. That was just the most perfect slice of pizza. And it was like in the middle of nowhere. Oh my God. And we're talking about tavern tavern style? Tavern style. Jardinera involved? No, just cheese pizza. But it was just like so good. And I wonder if it's still open, but I adored it. Um, And more so than the food even in Chicago, there was always this astounding hospitality. I feel like Chicago is a hospitable city, even if it's like the way people celebrate food, the way people celebrate holidays. And maybe it's like growing up in a big Italian family, you know, when all that started to kind of fall apart, I spent a lot of time kind of reestablishing certain traditions. And a lot of that resulted in me finding the best place for like a pulled pork sandwich or, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, the best ribs. Like I, ribs were my favorite food when I was a kid. Same. Ribs and fries. Same. I yes. love that. I have good Midwestern ribs, man. Oh man. And the, just like the, the vinegar oh, barbecue yeah. sauce, just like thin. It's not like super thick I and feel sugary. Oven, I feel oven ribs is almost a Midwestern thing. You're not yes. necessarily fetishizing post oak smoke like Texas. You, no. You can just like. This is oven. Baby, Midwest. Yeah, you're speaking is, my speaking yes. my name. Yeah, baby back thin, you know, thin mm. ribs. So good. I love that. I love that. Now I have a couple questions. So first is, what is the best Chicago food? Ooh, like, like as a topic? Yeah, as like a <laughs> category. Well, I would say I love Chicago style hot dogs first on my list. Love that. I think it's dialed. I think it's perfect. It's my favorite thing. It's the first thing I get when I go home. Um, I also think Chicago does an old school red sauce joint really well. I think Chicago does pizza really well. It's just different than yeah. New York style. Um, I would say that I love getting like Gene and Jude's hot dog with fries, the the spot that doesn't have ketchup, you know. Of course not. The mustard. Obviously. Yeah. You just go for it. The sport peppers, the whole thing. I love that. Oh my gosh. What about neighborhood? Is there a neighborhood in Chicago that we should maybe go to that we don't think about? Ooh. Um, yeah. I think that there are pockets, um, like I wonder where Birria Zaragoza moved, but have you heard of Birria Zaragoza? Zaragoza? Zaragoza, sure. I, where are they? Um, Okay. Because they did a pop-up in, oh, God, Edgewater, I think, okay. this year. And that's where I saw them. But they're incredible. And their whole entire family, I went in with Maddie, and we had a breakfast, like, sampler of their entire <laughs> menu. And her dad was cooking, and the whole family was there. And he just, like, couldn't have been a sweeter guy and just, like, helping out his daughter cook. And I was like, I love Chicago so much. It's, like, those neighborhood spots, especially, like, neighborhood taverns. Yes. Um, the but lo- everything's changed so much. Like, going yeah. back this this year even, like, seeing how much Logan Square has changed. Yeah, Logan and just, Square. There's so much popping up over even there. Even, like, Roscoe Village has changed. Yes. Which used to be so residential, yes. but it's now popping a little bit different. It totally is. 
is. Yeah. They're getting like ch- chicken spots in there. I know Lee just opened like a chicken spot. It's pretty crazy. What was it like, uh, like rolling around with the cast and uh, for food when you were shooting? Because I'm sure there was like some off days where you guys could go in and hang out. I mean, what was that like? I mean, I love it because I love seeing restaurants be so excited that they're there, you know, and it's really sweet. And um, I hope that the show feels like a little love letter to Chicago a little bit, at least, because I love hospitality in Chicago. Um, I've been a longtime fan of like the Boca group and like um, Donnie Media at Avec and his entire staff Amazing. and his team. And like, we would just bring in, you know, some of the cast and they would just spoil us, which is something that is so beautiful about the hospitality world is taking care of each other because you get it and you know it. And I think now the cast kind of sees that. Yeah, it's it's really special um, when you when you hit that Midwestern hospitality. I think it's definitely Chicago is thought about as a urban center and maybe s- divorced from the Midwest, but it still has extreme Midwest vibes. Big time. And I'm so grateful for it because I think it helped me in Los Angeles, you know, just being myself and navigating the restaurant world. Um, and that was the coolest part, even being the chef at John and Vinny's when I was, because I was working in an open kitchen. I was really comfortable engaging with people, and I've made lifelong friends from that. But I always think about these big personalities that I knew that I saw work a room in Chicago because I just wanted to, like, um, model that if I could or, like, see it and 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 put it into action. So cool. Let's talk about your career outside of television. You are obviously accomplished restaurant chef, but you've done pop-ups like to get a sense of where you're heading now that you've filmed and you're kind of told me that you've wrapped the edit. So you've got a little bit of time off. Yeah. What's going on with you professionally? So I've just been writing it all down. Like something that I got so busy, like I was really, really busy as a chef always that I would come up with these genius ideas, <laughs> make them happen. And then I would be like, oh, what did I put in that thing last night? It's a thing that a lot of chefs do where we like haven't made the same thing twice sometimes. So I've been really trying to better document the food that I make so I can share it with more people. I think storytelling and food, as we've seen on the bear, is super powerful. And I really want to work on developing that voice and putting oh it out gosh. there a little bit more. It's so hard to do as well as you do it so sure. you're, you're really tapped into because oh. yeah a lot of people try food content is as popular as ever and just looking on like my my samsung television last night and there's yeah. like literally eight channels of food and i was like wow i didn't even know this was here so food content is important but it's not that good most of it sure well this also speaks to when you think about food content one of the things that really was all-star about the bear is like our set decoration and props team and how much work they put into preparing themselves for this world and doing their own research and coming prepared. Like it made my job um, easier to do, but it also, like there were so many days where I'd be sitting that with them and being like, okay, this is a quarter sheet tray. This is a half sheet tray. Mm. This is a full sheet tray, but this is a hotel pan. Those are different things. This is a plastic hotel pan. That's a different thing. Different things hold different things. And it was just like some days I was like, whoa, this is just what I did as a chef all over again. (laughs) Um, But getting it right, you really have to allow people to bring their perspective and then also just shape it. So I was just like the shaper. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I I just I can't wait to see your career outside (laughs) of television go in directions that I'm sure can't even dream of. And 
I want to get a sense before we get to the question about cookbooks because I do want to get to that. But mm. what's popping in L.A. right now? Food wise? Yeah, man. I, w- mm. I love I've been there a bunch this year. I love going there. You're getting a lot of pop ups popping is what's happening. It seems <laughs> same in New York a bit. But yeah, L.A. always pops up. But see, L.A. is a perfect place for it. And I think it's cool to see all the chefs who are collaborating and like. Um, you know, I have so many wonderful chefs that have, you know, helped me and come through even at the Bear premiere season one. I had like the most talented group with me, just like backing me up of people that are just like amazing. My my friend just started, my friend Jesse started Hot Water Bagels. He's a New Yorker that's like making these crazy bagels and popping up there. You've got Quarter Sheets Pizza. Oh, of course. Hannah's been on the show. Yeah, totally. Quarter Sheets just like so good and so like... Um, good at like keeping it simple and delicious. Yeah, but but also like keeping it simple on the menu, but also it's like soigné. Yeah, you know, totally. I mean, you can just see. I think there's like I always say. I think for me, there's always a renaissance back to the simplicity of food that inspired me from the get to even cook. And when I do food that's a little bit more elevated, I'm always starting from that place, you know, of like, what are my favorite things to make? What am I inspired by? Who has taught me something that has still stuck to um, me as a chef and, and just trying to elevate that? But I think there's just so many amazing, fun things happening like i like the dolce vita like that restaurant popped Fun, up yeah. brought it back to life what a celeb spot it's now. a hot spot it's that's hot. the thing with la um there's little fish have you heard about the fish yeah. fried fish sandwich? i have heard about little fish it's interesting i haven't been there so nicky valley what a great name i don't know if i'm saying his last name right yeah. but he was one of my first um line cooks that i trained at john and Vinny. um and he just is even back then just a, such a natural gifted cook and so watching him come up and and do his thing is just i'm very proud of him and mm-hmm. i'm cool i'm like excited to see what they do that's cool L- i mean la like that bill addison just wrote this massive uh, uh, feature of, of japanese of sushi i mean in the la times it was amazing and it's just a reminder of how great that city is it really is there's so many hidden um food like mm-hmm. concepts, but restaurants to food trucks to, you know, family owned businesses that yeah. are in Altadena that are just amazing. Yeah. And I want to ask you, we asked all guests on taste, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world. Coco, what would that book be? Ooh, um, I would probably start from my favorite foods from a kid and like bringing them into like an actual recipe that I would make and be able to teach someone to make. Oh, right. Like you talk about like, like I grew up with like, you know, my grandmother making, you know, this risotto that was, I just remember very specifically, or like a bolognese to like the amazing ribs that I had. Like I, food influence has come from all different types of cuisine for me, but now it's like I have the ability of understanding how to make it teachable. So it's like all of these like things that seem difficult, like the perfect grilled bronzino. How do you do that? I finally am getting it right. This mm-hmm. is how I do it. This is like the most delicious minestrone that I make in a huge 20-quart pot and then freeze and, don't, and never make it again for two years. <laughs> or like, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is the easiest. That's legit two years, man. Yeah. Like you could definitely do that yes. with soup. Yeah, with yes. certain things. Yeah. Or like, 
you know, what I make to a friend to like make them feel love. Like I make lasagna or I make like a big CD from the Sopranos because y'all yeah. know why. Yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so there's just like a lot of the me um, that I am, like who I'm able to work with now is a largely in part of like what influenced me in food as a kid. So I'd like to, to sh- teach people that. Coco Store, thank you for joining Taste. Of course. It's my pleasure. And I, I just appreciate the opportunity so much. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 